Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. For centuries before the arrival of Europeans, trade routes connected the various peoples who lived throughout the American Southwest and Mexico. And trade among these groups remained an important source of economic vitality and cultural exchange, even after the Spanish arrived in the 16th century. Today, we're talking to Tatiana Sejas, Associate Professor of History at Penn State. Professor Sejas is working this year at the Center on an ambitious project exploring the social and economic significance of these commercial networks among indigenous groups and their later influence shaping interactions between native traders and Spanish colonial settlers. Welcome, Tatiana. Thank you, Robert. Well, this is indeed an incredibly ambitious project as I read about it, and I wanted to get a sense for our audience of the scope. I mean, you have a huge time sweep and a number of different peoples, and indeed, you're connecting the history, as I understand it, of the Southwest with that of Mesoamerica. So can you sort of unpack that for us a little bit in terms of the time period, in terms of the scope, in terms of the particular indigenous societies that we're talking about? Yes, it is an ambitious project. The periodization alone encompasses many centuries. Um, As it stands, the book begins around 1000 and it ends in the 19th century. So it is almost a millennia. And I chose to do this long periodization as a way of making connections across time that are usually ignored. I wanted to show that peoples who lived in the 1400s were already doing trade in a way that people had done in the 1100s. So it's a very early example, but I also just moving forward in terms of the 19th century, I wanted to show that the connections that were broken with the coming of the Mexican-American War really did end centuries and centuries of connections. And it's a way of emphasizing the significance of that break once the nation state comes in and, and starts dividing up the geography. So what was the Camino Real specifically, and can you situate us geographically? So when I started this project, I had a rather boring view of my project. Now that I think about it, I was going to do the road of empire, right? I was going to do how it was that bureaucratically Spain controlled the road that went from Mexico City to Santa Fe. So all royal roads. So Spain considered anything in which soldiers marched to be a royal road. (laughs) It's not like Roman roads, right? Romans actually built stone roads. The Spaniards wanted to be like the Romans, but they never actually constructed roads, Uh, not in Peru and not in Mexico. Usually they just followed existing roads that Indians had traveled for centuries before. So when I did research on even just trying to figure out where the road had gone, I realized that there was no history of where that geography was even. So one of the first things I did was look at 16th, 17th, 18th century maps and tried to find if there was a route mapped out on these maps. And the routes changed. It depended on the person who was creating that map. So that led me to think that maybe there were many roads and that I really had to just step away from the Camino Real concept and instead 
think about the many routes that connected this vast space. So if you think about it geographically, how is it possible that people living in the highlands of Mesoamerica, near where the volcanoes are in central Mexico, how is it possible that they maintained connections with the Rio Grande Valley in New Mexico for so many centuries. So that was kind of like the historical question that then developed and that I've been trying to answer since then. So how does this historical perspective that you're working on differ from past approaches to the same region in the same area? What are you doing that's different? You talk about deep history. Tell us about deep history and and tell us the different tact that you're taking. Historiographically, deep history is kind of a new, not new anymore, but a trend in the field uh, for historians to think more deeply into time, right? To think back into time to periods when we don't have documentation. It makes historians very uncomfortable to think about deep history because oftentimes it means that we have to then use the sources of biologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, people who work with not written sources, right? So that is kind of the thrust of deep history. We want to consider any one space from the long duration of when human beings have lived and created that space. Usually historians work in time periods where we have abundant archival information and we can just turn all of that archival documentation into narratives and arguments. So deep historians go way deep in time. Um, Some people are, for example, writing histories of rivers, people who lived along rivers going back to when the river was first formed. They have to turn to the work of geographers and geologists. And so that was a real inspiration to me for how I could kind of go deeper in time in my region of the world, which I've usually focused on Mexican history, and to do so before the 1492 moment that most um, Latin American historians seem to focus on. So we write history from 1492 to the present, and then prior to 1492, that has always only been in the realm of archaeologists and art historians. And people even call it prehistory. That's a periodization. And um, I wanted to fight that and write a history in which people are economic agents from very early on and then continuing onward. So your narrative is very much about, it's a departure from this more sort of unilateral narrative that looks at the economies solely from the perspective of their colonial influences. And you're looking, in addition to those colonial influences, at, at the indigenous economies themselves. That's part of the major departure that you're taking, am I correct? That's right. Traditionally, economic historians conce- have conceived of colonial Mexican history as having had an economy only once the Spaniards arrived based on sources and based on the idea that it is kind of a a Western models of economic development that bring about economic growth. So for example, people have written a lot about how silver mining, Spaniards came, they mined silver, and this um, was part of the beginning of uh, the development of capitalism. And 
I'm an economic historian, but I don't find these timelines of the development of capitalism that fascinating. I don't think it's a historical fact <laughs> that there was a rise of capitalism. Um, and I think we need to consider how other people, um, not only Westerners, conceived of economic exchange so that um, we're not working in some kind of like Marxian lens in which um, societies go through different stages of economic development. I would like to consider how people on the ground bought, sold, traded things um, and how they valued them and why they did that, but not in some kind of like long kind of developmental economic chain. In terms of what the indigenous peoples were actually trading, the actual products that they were trading, what would constitute a luxury item that might be of a surprise to us today? And what would constitute just sort of their everyday types of trade? Could you talk a little bit more about the actual objects and products? Sure. I have a lot of great examples in terms of maybe something that would be a surprise. Macaw feathers. So macaws are these beautifully colored birds that come from the lowlands of Mesoamerica. And they're red, green, blue, yellow. And the people in what is now Chihuahua, New Mexico, far to the north, became enamored of the vibrancy of these feathers, which surely I mean, might have had some kind of religious significance as well. And they probably had first acquired them by trade. But such was their interest in acquiring these feathers that they sent envoys down to the lowlands of Mesoamerica, and they brought back breeding birds. So you can think of people, you know, it's like the 1100s and people in modern-day Chihuahua, the society called the Paquima Society, started a breeding program for macaws so far in such a different ecology than where the birds are native from. And then once they had a breeding program and were making birds in a way, they started taking the feathers and then traveling northward as far as Utah and selling these feathers to people who didn't have native tropical birds from which they could acquire themselves those kind of feathers. So that's an example of how acquiring something from a very, very distant place is at first a luxury item, right? But then a people become so enamored of it that they then find ways to bring it to where they are um, and then also produce so many feathers that then it's not even so much of a luxury item anymore, right? Many more people could have these, these feathers um, and then it also made it possible for them to trade it to other peoples as well. Tell us a little bit about your sources and your process in terms of conducting this history. It's a very interdisciplinary project. You're informed by the findings of anthropologists, archaeologists, art historians, geographers. How does one go about constructing such a history? Well, I find myself asking that question on a daily basis. It has been humbling to learn different disciplines. I have delved into archaeology in a way that I never thought I would before. But I, I want to give you today maybe an example from a chapter that I'm now completing, which is on the trade of pine nuts. It started out by just trying to figure out why people traded pine nuts over very long distances. And it required my reading a lot of botanists, 
figure out that there are actually many kinds of pinyon pines. And pinyon pines, there are different species that are native to different geographies. So even that was helpful in understanding why the pinyon pines of one region would be desired in another region, because who knew that pinyon pines could be so different? So the pinyon pines of New Mexico are larger than the pinyon pines of the forests of the highlands of Mesoamerica. They're bigger, and when you crack them, they're very easy to crack, just with your teeth. And then you get the nut, and it's beautifully white. Uh, so, you know, peoples in New Mexico, Utah, Arizona have been eating pinyon pines for centuries. You harvest them, you trade them, you, you consume them. The people in the highlands of Mesoamerica have also been consuming pinyon pines for many centuries, but their pinyon pines are much harder to get at. So the shell is much harder, and when you open it, they have like this pink skin. So they're very different, even the object itself, and apparently they're slightly less sweeter. So people in, uh, for example, in present-day state of Mexico or San Luis Potosí, when they first were able to acquire the pinyon pines from New Mexico, the large white pinyon pines, they were willing to pay much higher prices for it. So it was only by submitting myself to reading the work of people who work in forestry that I was able to even come up with a possibility for why people in different regions would have wanted something that in the documents, all the documents that survived just say pinyon pine. So it didn't make sense until I really delved into other disciplines to figure out that exchange. We've been speaking with Tatiana Sejas, Associate Professor of History at Penn State University, who was a fellow this year at the National Humanities Center. Thank you, Tatiana, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.